Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is author, crime fiction author, Nikki Copleston. We talk about her series of books involving her character, Detective Inspector Jeff Lincoln. We talk about how she got there, how the first book took her 30 years to write, how the first book had a revision, and how she's had three other volumes since then. We talk about the slog of the independent writer. We talk about the real-life murders that inspired uh, these books, uh, or at least the first book. And overall, just a great chat. I saw Nikki do a guest uh, lecture, a guest talk, at the Froome Writers Collective some months ago, and uh, I was very compelled by what she had to say. I enjoyed her story, and uh, I wanted to get her on the podcast since I saw her there. So really happy that she's managed to join us this week. So here it is, Nikki Copleston on the Giant Pod. Hope you enjoy. So, um, yeah, Nikki, I first saw, I was first made aware of you at the Froome Writers Collective that I was visited as the mayor. Yeah. Um, funny thing with that is that I was told by my assistant, that there's like, you need to write a paragraph about Froome and it's, you know, collective creativity for the Writers Collective. And I had no idea what I was going into. This happens all the time. Um and so I thought, oh, I'll tell you what, I thought, what we're doing is we're just writing a paragraph and then we'll all share it and maybe talk about it. I thought, <laughs> I was envisioning this like round circle of people that have come with things pre-written. And then I got there and I realized that I was actually doing an actual guest's like talk. <laughs> yeah. and um, Top of the bill. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I had about four lines and then I asked if anyone wanted to ask me any questions and, and the room was deadly silent. And so I made my exit. But it seemed, seemed to, people seemed to enjoy it. Oh, but yes, I, yes. I did feel a little bit, um, I don't know, not stupid, but like, God, I wish I knew a bit more about that going in. But then I saw your talk and I thought, well, this is, this is, <laughs> this is great. So where does it start for you? Because right here on the, on the desk, you've got how many books have you got here? Four. Four. And are these all the same character? Yes, it's uh, D.I. Jeff Lincoln and his team in Barbary in Wiltshire, um, a place that doesn't exist. I mean, there is a Barbary castle, but this is Barbary the town. I'm okay. Sure. All right. So uh... And so before we get to these, mm -hmm. just, move, just move your mic a little closer to you mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then drop it down a little mm -hmm. bit there. Lovely job. Um, yeah, um, so before we get to these, I want to... Though you have a very good, what I would call an origin story, in in the world of um, in the world of superhero uh, uh, mania at the moment, I think origin story is is the word. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in writing, because you thought you were going to be a writer, and then you were sort of dissuaded, weren't you, or discouraged for a little while? Yes, yeah. Um, but now, obviously, you've fulfilled that dream. And uh, I'm just interested in how, how you arrived here, and then I want to I want to know about about the character and the books, <laughs> yes, and yeah. and how you how you create a world in which mm. a character is supposed to be a believable human being that spans over four four um, yes. four books. So tell me about that. How, so tell me about your writing, your early years of of like writing dreams. I always wanted to be a writer. It was right. just something I I just knew I was going to be an author, as I used to tell people. I'm going to be an author when I grow up. 
and uh, I used to enjoy doing compositions at school. And uh, I was just lucky in my friends at uh, secondary school. We all seemed to be writers to some extent. And I think there was just that competitive push so that we were all kind of competing against each other to write. And so um, I, I wrote sort of long short stories and, and novels and poems and uh, very influenced by um, Dylan Thomas. Uh, and uh, so my poetry was a bit derivative, shall we say. But, um, but people seem to enjoy it. I enjoyed the stories as well. And then um, I've always been very affected by place. And when I was a child, I used to spend my holidays at my grandfather's house. And it was an old brewery house in Crewkern. Right. And he was a brewery manager, and his father had been before him. And my mum and my sister had grown up in this house, but I, I hadn't. And I just loved this place, and it just really captivated me. And my mum found some old photos of it, and it was this about 19, 1967, 1966, 1967, I think. And I was at that impressionable teenage age, and, and um, I just thought, oh, it's wonderful, this lovely house. And, and I knew it was rather neglected by that point. And... Uh, and then I saw a Ken Russell film on television, on the, the Monitor series on BBC, and it was, it was called Dante's Inferno, uh-huh. starring Oliver Reed. It was Dante, Gabriel Rossetti, um, and Andrew Folds played William Morris. And I just absolutely captivated me. I was absolutely, you know, this was the, the pre-Raphaelites just hit me full on. And it was also the time when Jonathan Miller did his Alice Alice in Wonderland right. and this wonderful visual thing of, of neck curtains sort of streaming across corridors in empty houses. Everything just kind of all came together, just sort of coalesced into this push to record all of this, to capture all of this. And uh, I wanted to, to set it in this house where I'd spent my, my childhood holidays. And uh, so I'll, I'll write a historical novel. Right, that's it. So I had my character, I had the names, I had, it was all kind of terribly, you know, probably a little bit owed a little bit to Wuthering Heights as well, so you kind of got two different generations. Um, and I said it in 1909 because I didn't think too much had happened in 1909, so I hadn't got to worry about the First World War or the Boer War. Cause, right. You know, apart from Blario, you know, nothing much else happened in 1909, so I felt fairly safe. Okay, so you could create a... I could create it, yes, yes. Amazing. So, um, anyway, so I wrote this novel, and it was 100,000 words long, all typed <laughs> by my own fair hand, and I felt I'd kind of finished it. I, I, I think I was off school with flu or something, and I just, I think I was probably high on... Lucasade and antibiotics, and I just got this novel finished. And I just felt absolutely drained, just completely knocked out. And I thought, I've, I've written a masterpiece. Right. And it's, it, you know, people would just love this book. And friends at school thought it was wonderful. Um, anyway, you know, fast forward a, a little while. I'd left school. I had a job in a, a training college as a library assistant. I was too young to go to library school. And... Uh, I sent it off to publishers and, and 
didn't know about agents, that you're supposed to use an agent first. And, and uh, Livia Galantz wrote back and said very, you know, very politely, you know, it's, yes, a quite an achievement for somebody of your age. Um, but, uh, you know, steer clear of dialect and, and perhaps have something set in the present day. You know, good luck. Right. Who is that, Olivia? Because you, you've name-dropped her, so I imagine oh, she well, is yes, she's she, someone she was, in I mean, Galanx were the main publishers of, of certainly things like science fiction and lots of other popular fiction in the sort of, well, from post-war onwards, really. Um, and... Uh, and Livia, so to Livia receive a was, personal response. Yes. Oh, yes. Is, yes. is quite quite something. Isn't <laughs> yes. It, really? Yes. But things like at that point, I, think, I wasn't sure whether Livia was male or female, so I couldn't really sort of say much about it. But anyway, but I just sort of so disappointed, and I think I was just so shocked that nobody spotted my genius. Right. <laughs> and and so I kind of um, thought, well, you know, so what? And uh, and then I went to library school. And I was still writing, still writing, and still sulking that that this brilliant book had been turned down um and then obviously you know i kept on writing kept on writing i, I was working in libraries because i was kind of thinking i'd sneak into the back of publishing by working with books in some way or other right and actually i, mean, I did love librarianship I, I love being in libraries um and uh, so i did enjoy that um and uh then i've i've, I've really loved the series um Shoestring. Right. Do you remember? That's long before your time, of course. Um, but it starred Tra a very young Trevor Eves. Right. Eve. And it was set in Bristol. I love Bristol. Um, I grew up, grew up in Salisbury, so we used to go to Bristol for things from school to the theatre and so on. Right. And, um, so it's got a nice place in your heart as a place of sort of fun and culture. Well, it has, yes. And, um, and, and Shoestring was set in Bristol. And he was, um, the character was Eddie Shoestring and he was a, radio um presenter right uh but sort of as a sideline he he sort of did a bit of a private eye and he'd sort of try and sort out these uh crimes and things uh, and it was a great romp but it was quite a short-lived series and when it finished i was so disappointed and i thought well you know perhaps i could write something in that kind of vein right so i created this character called eddie andrews and he wasn't he didn't work in a radio station he lived in london because i was living in london and uh, and he worked. I mean, I'm sure J Ricky Gervais didn't ever see this, but he worked in this company that that sold wholesale stationery, <laughs> and um, a bit like the you know, the office. And Eddie, I mean, I can actually see Martin Freeman would make, would make a brilliant um, Eddie Andrews. And Eddie had fallen out with his boss, had a big row, walked out. And his friend said, oh, you know, it's stupid, you mustn't do that. You know, go and apologise. He said, no, I bet you that in a year I could make as much money answering small ads as if I went and grovelled to get my job back. So it was called The Small Ads Man. Right. And Eddie took various jobs he found in the small ads in the Evening Standard. Those were the days. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, these tasks he took on got more and more sort of dark and criminal um, and until there was some sort of big climax. Anyway, um, anyway, I sent it off to um, an agent. Um, I knew, I'd found out about agents by then, and we're talking about 1984, so it's quite a while ago. Right. Um, and because I'd kind of written it from Eddie's point of view, so it was a male perspective, I thought, well, better not sort of send it off as, you know, my name. So I, I sent it off by Nick Coppersmith <laughs> and heard nothing at all, nothing at all. And then I was at work... Um, in the library on Holloway Road. 
um, in Islington, and everybody else had gone home, and the phone went. And I thought, can I speak to Nick Coppersmith, please? And I thought, <gasps> and I just, you know, it was just a, one of those moments where you think, oh, God, what do I say? So what did you do? Did you go, <coughs> I'm speaking? No, I had to say, I said, oh, I said, who is this? <laughs> and it was David Grossman, the, the right. agent. Right. Um, and I said, well, I've got to come clean. I'm, you know, I am Nick Coppersmith, but and I explained... And he was just really taken with, with the manuscript. And he right. said, oh, it's wonderful. It's a picaresque piece. Picaresque. Um, and uh, I was just, I, I, was, I walked on air for days after right. that. And I went to see him. And um, he, he was tickled pink that I was actually a woman writing you know, this, this male, from a male perspective. See, I thought that would have been a, a very um, a common thing in writing. Because the Bronte sisters wrote under pseudonyms, didn't they? Yeah, but, but that was a long, a bit long, a long ago. time ago. But, <laughs> and what, I suppose but there's a of, tradition of successful writers using different names, isn't there? But I suppose you get P.D. James, you know, you wouldn't know what gender she was, would you, from, right. from that, I suppose. Um, but um, I, I just thought it would give more credibility that it was, you know, Nick Coppersmith had written this. Um, anyway, he, David managed to um, get it looked at by bodily head, but he couldn't actually place it. And uh, I was disappointed, obviously. Um, but it hadn't really occurred to me um, at that point, you know, what I was writing. I was just writing things I enjoyed doing. Um, and so I kind of put it to one side and then work got busier. I, I moved from Islington to, to another London borough. And so work just, you know, piled on and uh, I didn't write much for a while. Um, and then in 1986... Just before Christmas '86, there were two murders that took place in Salisbury right. uh, within the same 24 hours, and my father had actually taught the, one of the victims, and it just shook me up so much. This idea of Salisbury, which is some you know somewhere I'd grown up, and it seemed yeah, it was it was never the sleepy Wiltshire town that people would have you say it is because no. there were always squaddies around at the weekends. It was quite a rough place in many ways, but that's not what the tourists would see, of course. Yeah. And, and something began to go around in my head about, you know, this these murders and and, and somehow just, I, I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before to actually write for a particular genre. And I suddenly thought, because I read lots of crime novels, perhaps I should write a crime novel. Right. Um, and... And I had as the sort of starting point was, was what happened with one of these murders that a woman had stopped on the outskirts of the town to use the public toilets. She'd been attacked by a lavatory attendant and, and murdered. And it got me thinking about, well, you know, I drive around places now for work. I stop strange places and, you know, that could have been me possibly because she, right. was, she was just doing market research. She wasn't doing anything risky. She right. did, she'd come from Hampshire to, to Salisbury to meet somebody to talk about some market research. So it was completely out of the blue, you know, unexpected. Do you think it was that um, that degree of separation from, you know, was it two degrees your dad taught her? Was it one or two degrees? Dad taught the other victim. Right. Um, it was just the fact that he was so shocked and it just, the whole thing was just so shocking. It made it very real for you, I guess. It did. And, yeah. and my mum my had died the previous year and I think I wanted... I was feeling a bit homesick, I think, for Wiltshire. Right. You know, living in London, couldn't see any way of ever moving out of London um, at that point. And, and I think I wanted to to capture Salisbury. But I couldn't call it Salisbury because I didn't want anybody thinking, oh, well, you're using that case of, you know, the poor woman who was killed. So yeah. I, I had to disguise it. Is that a case of um, artistic integrity or 
a sort of a moral thing. So you don't, or both. So you don't appear like you're sort of mining someone else's grief and tragedy for, 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 you know. Yeah, I'm a bit of both, really, because I didn't want anybody to say, oh, well, you, know, you got the idea from what happened to that woman. But at the same time, I wanted... Well, I felt unhappy for her because, because it was just before Christmas and it was before the internet, so they just had the newspapers being sensational about, oh, she wasn't where she was supposed to be, the um, you know, mystery of the appointment she didn't keep. And I thought, well... The blame on her for being murdered. Almost, and, and she wasn't yeah. glamorous. She wasn't young and glamorous. She was in her 40s. She had sort of big goggle glasses. Um, and there's only you know, rather unflattering photo of her. Um, and it just seemed she was being exploited, and I didn't want to kind of carry on with that exploitation. But at the same time, I thought, well, I, I kind of want to speak up for what you know, the victims and the people left behind, which is why you know, the books have never been... Uh, I've never had... Um, Murders which kind of have things carved on the bodies or people arranged in particular ways of, of symbolic significance, which right. I know a lot of people like that kind of thing and the sort of serial killers, but yeah. I, I want to see something more authentic okay. and, and get across that more. So, so anyway, that would well, probably late 80s, I suppose, I began to think, oh, I could perhaps create a, a crime writer. Because I'd gone on writing in a small way and there'd been crime creeping into each of the novels I'd written, nothing ever successful. And then it was about, about 1990, I, um, I actually did create Jeff Lincoln and, right. um, and started on The Price of Silence, um, which um, I wrote. It was very long, very baggy. I painted myself into various corners. Um, it didn't really, I didn't really know what I was doing and I was kind of doing it in, in fits and starts. And um, and then I said, work got more, you know, busy. Life happened. Life happened, yeah. life happened. Um, and then eventually, I mean, I'd never left, gave up hope of perhaps getting it published. I sent it off to agents and I got some nice feedback, but um, yeah, but not for us. It was very long and, right. and so very baggy. And... Um, when you so, say baggy in a... In a, in a, in a explain what you mean by that in terms of it was just kind a bit of rambling sort of... and and um you know the, the the plot was very kind of not kind of sort of sharp enough it wasn't right. clear enough you know what happened what the consequences of one thing and and um it was just sort of lots of little narrative whims and a bit and... it was just there was just too much of it really right okay um, just too it was about twice the length that that it ended up as right and um so I, I really did pretty much put it in in the bottom drawer um, because I, I couldn't place it. And, and also, of course, as time went on, things like the internet came in and the mobile phones and, and all of this. So it was getting rather out of date. And, um, and then I got made redundant in 2011. And I thought, now I can write. So I sat down and I was writing this, this uh, novel, sort of um, about four women in their sort of 50s who... Um, some big life-changing thing happens and I was getting so bored with it and I thought, and one of them gets involved in some criminal thing and I've sort of brought in this character. I thought, oh, I can, I can use that Jeff Lincoln character. And things began to kind of, you know, get a bit more exciting and I thought, well, actually, perhaps I don't really want to desert him after all. Yeah. You know, and, and so I parked this thing about these women in their 50s and I thought, 
Now, is that bad when you start to bore yourself <laughs> writing it? Is that yes. a bad thing or is that a thing I, that happens? Is I think, it... Well, I think it's a bit of both. I think, right. I think, yes, you can bore yourself, but you sort of think, well, if I'm getting bored, the reader's getting bored. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not like the old Raymond Chandler thing, you know, something starts to flag, you kind of get a guy coming through the window with a gun. You, you can't really do that with every novel, you know, right. some genres you can. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be a theme of, of sort of women, older women or women in their middle ages creeping into your work. What do you think that is? Do you think they're just generally more interesting? Like they could be a bit more uh, well-rounded characters or human beings. I suppose to explore, there aren't or... enough books written about them. I suppose, um, and I, and I was probably feeling a bit out of touch with what say, a thirty-year-old woman would you know would would be like. Um, right. I mean, it's quite strange reading some of my older novels that I wrote when I was in my thirties, twenties, and thirties, and thinking, oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking, what if people don't write? and keep things they wrote when they were that age, how do they know what they were like then? It's a bit strange. Um, But anyway, so I took early early retirement and and was going to write, decided perhaps I should write a crime novel. And and so I wrote a new thing um, with uh, with Jeff Lincoln, with The Shame of Innocence. Um, And it was, I suddenly thought, why didn't I think before? You know, I'm a librarian, I'm a reader, I go into bookshops. Why didn't I think before that I should choose a genre instead of just writing these rather slightly general novels? Um, So I wrote that and and I embarked on it. We moved to Wells in 2012 and I... thought, what's his writing lark? Can I really carry on with this? Is it worth it? And then Alison Klink um, from Froome, um, you know, who's done a lot with the Froome Festival, she's a short story writer, she's written novels and a memoir, um, she was running a creative writing course in Wales for Somerset Skills and Learning. And I thought, do I swallow my pride and admit I need to learn a bit more about writing? And I signed up for it, and, right. and I, it was just such an eye-opener because I really felt, I mean, humbled in one sense, realising how good people's writing was. Um, and I wasn't actually this sort of wunderkind that I thought I was in my teens. But also, I did get some nice feedback, so I knew that, I, you know, I just needed to polish what I, what I was doing. Alison was wonderful. She was so encouraging, and she... So when this course in Wells ended, she said, well, come over to Froome College. I'm doing a course there. So I went to that. And then Froome Writers Collective was started in 2014. And um, and that was a, another sort of milestone as far as I was concerned, to be with other writers and have feedback. Because it sounds like you were sort of a lone wolf a little bit for well, many years. Well, I was, years. yes, because I didn't think I needed anybody else, right. you know. I mean, I mean, this is, you know, I'm somebody who... <laughs> When I was younger, <clears throat> I wouldn't read anything by anybody younger than me. Where I mean, that's how resentful. Right. Where do you think this, <laughs> this, 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 uh, I don't want to say arrogance, but where, where did this sort of bloody mindedness come from and this headstrong um, attitude come from towards writing and, and knowing that you're really good or not reading anything from anyone um, younger than you. Where's where do you think that comes from? I think it probably is arrogance, but There's also I, I, I think yes, I think I just was um, so convinced that I, I'd written something brilliant with this very first novel I wrote in my teens, and I just knew I I loved writing, and but I just hadn't quite got it all together. You know, it just hadn't quite um, gelled properly, um, and I, I think I thought I'd, I'd sit back and have somebody discover me. Right. It doesn't work like that. You have actually got to be very proactive. Um, and that's really what Froome 
Writers Collective helped me with because I knew I had to actually make some effort, contribute, put myself out there. I couldn't just sort of sit back and hope somebody would spot my work and say, oh, you're brilliant, you know, yeah. where have you been all these years? Um, so with the help of Free Writers Collective, um, Silver Crow Books was formed, which is an imprint which helps writers get feedback on their manuscripts, suggests sort of editorial changes, um, and also offers support in knowing how to get that book published, and when it's published, uh, giving support in promoting it. And so The Shame of Innocence was the first book that um, Silver Crow um, helped publish. Um, I was kind of a bit of a guinea pig in 2016 when I sent in my manuscript, and this came out in 20, November 2016, uh, when Silver Crow was kind of officially launched. Right. Um, but I'd still got this this one lurking in a, a drawer somewhere. Um, <laughs> the bottom drawer. The, there wasn't, the well, exactly, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I kept thinking, oh, what do I do? Because if anybody says, oh, what else have you written? Because obviously it was a backstory alluded to in, in this one. Right. Um, and I kept thinking, well, if I say to people, well, you, you can, it's an e-book, you can get it on Amazon, you know, would I really want them to find it? Right. Um, and... The, the, the gap between the writing of this one, the original of this one, and, and The Shame of Innocence. The Shame of Innocence, there were mobile phones, there was the internet, a completely different way of investigating a crime right. than what I'd originally written about in the, in the 1990s with the very first version of the first Jeff Lincoln. So that is interesting that in this second book, The Shame of Innocence, you have alluded to the existence of the first book. So you have enough confidence in at least distilled elements of that story mm, mm, yeah. still. So it's still in there. You know that there's something in there when, yes, when you're yes. writing that. It's interesting that you then go... It's, many bands do this as well. And, they, they, you know, a lot of people will say you have your whole life to write your first album or you yes, have your whole yes, life to yes. write your first book. Yes. And I think most people expect the first attempts of these things to be incredible because you've had, I don't know, 20, 30 yes, years, yeah. let's say. But... Um, you know, editing is is important, isn't it? And so it's very interesting that you you you've had enough confidence still in your first effort with um, uh, Lincoln mm. to uh, to think about you know at, at least shining a light on this book and it maybe mm. being mm. found because as you've said, you know it's probably not your best work at that point because mm. I know obviously you've gone back to it mm. now. Mm. So it's interesting. It's interesting that you, mm. you've got the confidence in it. Um. So maybe that was it. Maybe that was a, subconsciously that was your way of forcing yourself yes, to go back. I think it you know was I mean? because I really did. I mean, after this one came out, the publisher commissioned a stately grade distillery, a novella with the same characters, right? Um, which is set has to be set just before this one because I'd already begun to think of what happened after so it's that. It's like a mini prequel. Yes, but Excellent. then I, but I still this was still haunting me, and I thought, right. do I go back and rewrite it? Do I have the nerve? And oh, were you scared of what you might find? Yes, I, I think I was. I just thought, is it stupid to embark on that? Shall I just keep going forward? Right. And I thought, I mean, who publishes books in, in reverse order? Because that, in effect, was what I was doing. Um, but I'm just so glad I did because it, it kind of got rid of that shame of of, of thinking, oh dear, it, you know, if only I'd done it properly the first time. Um, oh, what and, could have been? Know, well, exactly, yeah. because I, I was still proud of the the ideas I'd had for this. And the way in which, for instance, you know, in this you find out how Lincoln lost his wife, whereas here it, it, it's, he's already lost her, he's recovering. So you find out why he bought this 
old vicarage that's a you know, real fixer-upper, right. uh, a money pit, really. You you find out why he did, whereas in The Shame of Innocence, he's, he's there and he's still not fixing it up. But, I mean, right. he's in this house and you think, well, why did he do that? This tells you why he did that. Okay. I guess we should maybe talk about him a little bit as a character because <laughs> you've just said to me how his wife died. And I thought, <laughs> his wife's dead? <laughs> All great detectives or, or sort of police uh, yeah. dramas, there is a dead wife who in flashbacks yes, yes. is absolutely perfect. Yes. Always, you know, greeting them with a kiss in the morning, mm. before and after work, mm. just the perfect wife. And, they, and then she's ripped away by the yes. underworld or something. It's more complicated than that. Right. Oh, oh well, tell yes. me all about it, please. <laughs> well, what, what's happened is that um, uh, Lincoln has kind of neglected his wife rather. And, and it's quite subtly alluded to, but he, he does play away a little bit. Um, he always has done the old flings, um, um. but uh, but his his wife Kathy um, has gets a, has been attracted to um, a, a teacher uh, who's a very sort of left wing chap and um, very uh, sort of soft natured and mild mannered, probably a bit anti police. Right, um, the opposite. The of opposite right. of Lincoln. I see. Um, and uh, and she falls for Andy, and uh, so she. She moves out and, and leaves Lincoln, and uh, and and then she is killed. She she's um, run down by a a joyrider when she's walking home from work one night. Um, and because Lincoln blames himself, I mean he blames her lover to start with, Andy Bloody Nightingale, who stole her away. Um, but he also blames himself, and and uh, I think that's one of the themes of this is that he still can't quite get over. Um, that you know, a lot of it was his fault that he neglected her. What they could have had because they were you know real, real lovey-dovey at the beginning um, when they were first together in in London. Um, but hopefully he, he'll find love. But you know, his relationship with Trish, the librarian who crops up all through this, is very on and off. And that's partly I think because whenever I've read crime novels and the the main character detective is happily married, I think. Mm. It's boring, you know. I, I like that possibility and that kind of uncertainty about relationships yeah. uh, with the main character, rather than having them happily married off, which always seems rather cosy to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, and a lot of re readers like that. I mean, same right. with Wexford and his and his wife and and the daughters and everything. But that just <laughs> I don't, kiss of death to me as as, as a reader. Right. That kind of sort of coziness. Yeah. Well, I guess it adds an element of. Um complacency to a character doesn't mm, yes, it they can, yes you know if everything's squared away and perfect yes yes it's not very compelling is it no <laughs> it isn't is it but but what it, i guess what's more interesting is you know we, we have people in life that always seem to have like the most perfect marriages or relationships and you think oh, what is going on here <laughs> yes what's going on when these doors are shut yeah so off about you guys that would be an interesting take on, on that um sort of a picturesque thing. But yeah, I definitely, I, I, like, I like my detectives and stuff to be flawed yes, yes, individuals, yes. like brilliant but flawed individuals. And Sherlock is the same. Yes. Luther is the same from, from mm, the TV. Mm. Going into video games, Max Payne is the same. His mm, wife and mm. child were murdered. He has an addiction to painkillers and mm, is an alcoholic mm. and, um, and he's very much a sort of grimy New York noir <laughs> yes, yes. kind of, you know, there's a narration yes, going on. Yes. So we do love, we love a flaw. It's kind of like anti-heroes in a way, isn't it? Because they're, they're humans that are very flawed that aren't necessarily always great role models. Mm. But somehow we end up 
caring about them mm. and wanting mm. them to succeed and yes, thrive yes. and maybe even um an element of a sort of a redemption arc somewhere yes 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 um so yeah very interesting i do like a good detective <laughs> they're all they're all very interesting characters um i see that you've got some um I, maybe you had a train of thought that i'm going to derail here but i see <laughs> that you've got some um newspaper cuttings and stuff yes i mean that that was the is this from the the murder that, thing? that was the um Right. 1986. So, so, so we've got some audio listeners. So I'm just going to read that. Man accused of Salisbury death. We've got a newspaper cutting here. Detectives investigating the brutal killings of two women in Salisbury charged a man with the murder of one of them last night. Mr. Alexander, what's this? What's his second name? McInnes. McInnes, uh, a public lavatory cleaner employed by Salisbury District Council, was accused of murdering Mrs. Beryl Deacon, aged 44, from Ringwood, Hampshire, whose body was discovered in lavatories in Salisbury early on Sunday. I won't read any more, mm -hmm. but um, interesting. Very interesting. And these killers, sometimes they just seem to be people that have very sort of like, you know, it's just a lavatory. I don't want to put anyone down who's a lavatory cleaner, but it doesn't, you know, they seem to have these kind of jobs that are very kind of on, on your own. Yes. Sort of yeah. Seem quite lonerish yes. or um, not, yeah. they're not very particularly, I would imagine it to be a very fulfilling. Um, no, I mean, he was actually originally from Scotland. I mean, I don't know how long he'd lived in Salisbury, but I mean, I, I, through the Facebook um, group sort of dedicated to, to Salisbury history, um, somebody commented that um, he played pool with him the night before. Um, you know, so he, he's a chap would go into a pub. I mean, I mean both the, the killers were men who'd go into the pub and you wouldn't think twice about it. You might think, oh, he looks a bit tough guy. Right. But you wouldn't think, oh, he's a killer. Most of the killers that we, we we see on the news and serial killers, mm. they don't present themselves to be massively tough. Well, at least men who kill women mm. don't mm. seem to be particularly tough guys. No. Or men that you'd find particular... Well, maybe women would, but men that other men wouldn't find mm. particularly... Um, um, what's the word? Intimidating. Intimidating, that's the word, Because yeah. often there's an element of insecurity there, isn't yeah. there, which is at the root of, of their fear that somebody's going to leave them or that they're never going to find somebody else or this whole idea of, of somebody belonging to them and, and that, you know, what's mine's mine. Nobody else is going to have the, the person, you know, who's in a relationship with me. Mm. Um, but, yes, yeah, so the whole motivation for murder is, is horrifying, isn't it? And... Um, uh, and again, I mean, although I, I love myself serial killer films and things, I mean, they're great, I want to say great fun, but I mean, they, they are engaging, entertaining, dare one say it. Um, they're sort of strange, vicarious things, yes, aren't they? Yes, yes. Uh, and it, it is fascinating to know what, you know, why has somebody, why can somebody dehumanise another person to that extent mm. that they can steal themselves um, and that was just a total lack of empathy, isn't it? Say a, a psychopath uh, just doesn't see the other person at all as somebody sort of sentient being, in a sense. Mm. Um, so I mean, all the the murders in in these in the books, they they all arise from there's there's no kind of weirdo character. They're they're right. all people who are responding to something in their lives. Um, you know, there's no 
weird psychopath who suddenly emerges. Um, because, I mean, that's great. I'm a, I read novels like that myself. But it's not what I'm interested in. I'm right. interested in, in more ordinary people and, and the damage that those murders yeah. do to everybody around the victims. Well, well, serial killers have sort of been done in a way, haven't they? I mean, they're very kind of, they're very in the zeitgeist since Netflix really pushed a lot of its sort mm. of serial killer documentaries. You've got a lot of stuff on Ted Bundy and, mm. and of course, you've, you've got um, the Dennis Nielsen yes, TV yeah, show. Yes. And they're great characters. Yes. If you're removing the fact that they were real-life people and did some mm. horrific things, they're very fascinating characters. Um, but it's kind of done, isn't it? You know, you've got the film Seven and then you've got... Saw, and you've got all these other films that've got all these interesting, complex, psychopathic characters, and you know characters in Batman that are sort of serial killer-like people, and and um, it's been done, hasn't it? So I appreciate the angle that you're you're trying to take here, which mm. is a bit more grounded, a little bit sort of uh, you know you're seeing you're seeing this stuff through the eyes of other characters, mm. I guess, mm. and like you were saying, the impact, the waves, the ripples mm. in the world, yes. yeah. Um, which is often, they don't really focus on that often. They focus no. on sort of like gore porn. Yes, which I, I don't really... I've just been reading um, the autobiography or memoir of Brian Masters, who is the, the writer who uh, interviewed Dennis Nilsson. He oh. actually wrote the um, Killing for Company. And he also interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer or, and Dahmer's parents. Wow. And he wrote a book um, about Jeffrey Dahmer he was commissioned in the States. And a lot of the thrust of the book was why Jeffrey Dahmer did what he did. Mm. And the book was turned down because the Americans didn't want to know why he did it. They were not interested in what had made him a serial killer. They're only interested in the circus. Yes, yeah. Very interesting. That's right. A lot of the time when you dig into these guys, it is like you were saying earlier, it is a... I think with Dennis Nielsen and Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer, they both... They were both gay, weren't they? Yes. There's an I element think, of shame yes, about think, their sexuality yes, yes, and hanging yes. on to not wanting these people like to leave them. Mm. And definitely with Jeffrey Dahmer, he mm. he was had a a thing about people leaving him, walking out mm. on him. Mm. And then people always go, Well, blame the parents, but mm. very often. Like Ed Kemper. Mm. Um he's uh he's an interesting one as well. He used to uh, he said that the women he was called the co ed killer. Mm. He was my height as well. And um and he said that all along, and he had a genius IQ because he was a proper psychopath, so he thought he was mm. smarter than everyone else. And and he said that really all he was doing when he was killing these these college girls was practising killing his mother. Mm. He didn't realise. And then he killed his mum. And um, But when you hear the stories about some of these people, and you hear about how his mother treated him... Yes, think, there's well, usually something in childhood, isn't there, that... Yeah. that that just switches a you know flicks a switch or doesn't flick the right switch. Yeah, I mean somebody like Dennis Nilsson, a man, know somebody who remembers him when he was a shop steward. You know, he worked for he was a civil servant. Right, he was a very compelling shop steward, very good orator. Um, right, uh, yeah, but perhaps slightly not not creepy exactly, but uh, perhaps not somebody you necessarily want to go to the pub with. But you'd never think, oh yeah, right. What so they give you the heebie-jeebies enough. Yeah, there are certain people out there. You just get a vibe from them. And yes, you're like, I like yeah. you. There's something off about you. I'm not. Under, I'm not 100 sure what it is, but it ain't cool. Mm -hmm. And I like you in principle, but I'm going to keep you at an arm's length. Mm. And I think there's a lot of these people. They probably start out a bit like that, mm, and yes. so that feeling of always being kept at arm's length by the world will probably 
probably perpetuates mm. those feelings of being unlovable or unwanted or not fitting in because yes, they just yeah. give out a, a scent yes, that people yeah. and women go, mm, I don't know what it is about you, but I don't, something in my instincts mm, are telling me mm, not mm. to go home with you or get in the car with you. Yes. Um, fascinating, mm. fascinating. In your talk, you were talking about, were you talking about a well that was covered yes. over? Yes, yes. I thought that was fascinating. Can you... <laughs> Can you go over because that sort of features in here, doesn't it? It's the, it's, the, it's the big, that very opening of the promise of salvation, right? Um, and this is the which book is this? That's no, the fourth one. That's the, the, the fourth last one. book. Yeah, the, the last one. What a lovely segue into the last book. <laughs> um, the uh, the uh, when I was grew up in I grew up in Wilton, just outside Salisbury, and uh, Groveley Wood um, is a, a wonderful wood. It's a forest that goes all sort of along the top of the the downs through the Wiley Valley. And uh, where the houses finish in Wilton, um, the wood begins, Groveley Wood begins, and the sort of chalk track, and, and it begins to get a little slightly spooky. I think you have to be of a nervous disposition to write crime, because if you aren't frightened by things, you don't know how to frighten people. Um, <laughs> but there was this um, big well thing that was a, a, like a brick well, like, like a, a large well, I can't remember exactly how big it was, surrounded by barbed wire and it had corrugated iron laid, laid across the top, more rusty, very spooky. And we used to scare each other as kids when we used to walk up there or go up there um, when we probably should have been at school or doing something else. Um, and oh yeah, is, is there water there? You know, what's down there? How far does it, how deep, how deep is it? And we kind of dare each other to, to look inside to see if you could see any water glinting under the surface or, or whether it was just uh, you know, quite shallow. Uh, nobody really knew what it was for. I think I did discover later it was some sort of a reservoir set up. Right. Um, I think actually in the 1870s, it goes back a lot earlier than um, in the book. Because um, it's a fairly high point, I suppose, and there was a waterworks just a bit farther down the, the hillside. Uh, and in the book, um, there's a gale. The, the book opens in February. Right. And uh, there's a gale and the corrugated iron sheet blow off the top of this well and land in the garden of Barbara Trent, who lives in the, the last house in the terrace. And uh, she goes up to investigate and she's appalled at all the fly tipping that's gone on and this well that's been filled in over the years by rubbish being posted in there. And her little dog, who she's taken out for a walk, is fascinated by all the new smells, leaps into the, into the rubbish tip and sends everything rolling down. And right. as it rolls down, a, a small skeleton is revealed. And, and this is really how the book opens. Um, and uh, I think, as I say, the, the well that used to be there has now been filled in. You can see it on old maps. Right. But I suppose it was the possibility and the kind of spookiness of this and what could be in there. Yeah. And I'd always kind of wanted to somehow put it into a book. So it had been in the back of my mind for quite a while that I would have something set there. And right. This idea of the the gale blowing the iron sheets off into her garden, landing on, on her lawn and her very cross kind of going to investigate and, and then seeing this little skeleton. It's horror. Yes. It's, it's almost a, like a narrative device, isn't it? Because it's something of mystery. Um, I remember seeing a talk that J.J. Abrams did. and he's mm. He was the guy who wrote 
Lost, the mm. TV show mm. Lost, mm. which frustratingly never to- never wraps up many of its mm. narrative threads in the end, but nevertheless has an, an enormous amount of intrigue. And he was talking about the importance of this box that he had as a kid. It was a mystery mm. box. Mm. And he said he's never opened it because he feels that now what will be inside will never ever live up to mm. what he's yes. created in his mind. So he has this box in his house from his childhood mm doesn't know what's in it and he doesn't plan on finding out it's like magic trick stuff Mm, but he doesn't know what really what Mm. and uh i guess that well for you is that sort of thing where it's it could be anything to the list to the reader um you've created a or it's created a a, something where you can almost fill in the blanks Mm, i guess that's mm. why things like wells and caves and Mm. derelict buildings and Things like that is because we fear what we don't understand, or, or we fear what we fear what we cannot see or control, mm, or mm, mm. Um, the unknown, isn't it? Um, yes. And so that well is 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 a very cool piece of storytelling, I guess, because the you know you can tell them what's in it, but they can imagine how, you mm, know mm. a lot more of what you know what's mm. happened in it, how it's happened. Um, what else might be in there, and it's it's, a, it's very cool. It's very compelling, I think. Well, the thing is also that uh, obviously this isn't true necessarily in real life, but in the book, um, that well had been sunk in something a much older pit called Plyboy's Pit, right? Um, which um, had been again sort of the sort of Moonraker idea that this little it was called Plyboy's Pit because a little plowboy had looked in and thought he'd seen this sort of silver uh, coin glowing in the water and kind of leaned in to get it because it was a reflection of the moon and he'd fallen in and drowned. And So you've got this sort of layers of history that, you know, a long time ago this little boy had drowned in, in a natural pit. Right. And then the army came along in the early years of the 1900s and created this reservoir for the army during the war. The army were all through the woods in the war. Um and now it's been used for rubbish uh, and also as a, a last resting place for this little girl 20 years earlier who she'd been abducted from a fun fair, as we discover. Right. And her, her bone, her body laying there until Barbara's little dog discovers it. Um, Interesting. And so that's the... In, in, and then so Lincoln gets involved, at, you know, he is he the kind of guy that shows up to a crime scene you know, with like a big coat on, and it's like, what have we got here? You know, nothing phases him. Or what What kind, you know, how does he, what is his brilliance as a, other than being a compelling, interesting three-dimensional character, what is, what's his brilliance as, as a, he must be a good detective. He's he's quite dogged, and he, he he's quite a ditherer as well, and he makes mistakes. And the way I've written the books is that the reader will often know more than Lincoln, because different chapters um, will sometimes feature other characters. So sometimes you can see Lincoln and his team going down quite the wrong track because you know it wasn't something that the reader already knows that these other people were doing something. Um, But he will kind of worry away at something. So, for instance, when um, one of the characters, um, one of the victims is is found um, in a flat... And the gentleman has taken his clothes off to, um, you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, and Lincoln goes into the spare room and sort of sees this chap's clothes on the bed and and thinks, it's funny, I, you know, and he sort of says to, to to Woody, his sergeant, you know, 
how do you how do you take your clothes off? And Woody sort of what? Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, what he what Lincoln has spotted is that the clothes are kind of in the wrong order. You know, you wouldn't if you'd sort of taken your clothes off. And in that room, right. you probably Socks take off, off trousers off. Exactly, shirt, reverse yeah. order to right. the way that these are, and they're kind of heaped up. And and this the, the victim who he'd met very briefly the day before didn't strike him as somebody who would just sort of take his clothes off any old how and just drop them down. He would actually right. put them carefully. Yeah. So so, so that has struck Lincoln right. straight away is not quite right. And and so what appears to be an accident or possibly suicide. Lincoln straight away thinks, I think there was somebody else here. I don't think this chap put these clothes on the bed the way these clothes have been put on the bed. So I think with Lincoln, he sort of gets little, little flashes of inspiration. Um, but I, what I always want to do is make sure it's quite clear how he's reached that conclusion. He doesn't suddenly have a flash of brilliance. There will be some way that he's built up to that. He will put things together. Mm. And something will have accumulated so that he has reached that conclusion through logic. Um, not quite, you know, like, like Holmes, but, you know, he will have built up a case or uh, perhaps eliminated other possibilities until he's reached what he thinks is what happened. Right. Um, and so I sort of like to, to show him sometimes making mistakes. Um, but also I like to to show that point when he does realise what the actual answer is. And, and um, it's not always him because he's got a team around him um, uh, and sometimes they will say, oh, look, you know, this this happened, this, perhaps it's this. And he'll say, oh, I don't think so. And then he'll perhaps reconsider it and accept that perhaps, you know, Pam right. Smith has got that right, you know, his yeah. DC. Um, so it's not all, not all down to him. Um, it's interesting. And I guess at the end, I don't want to ruin any of the endings, <laughs> although there are four endings to, to potentially... <laughs> to ruin. <laughs> ruin. Um, I guess the end isn't like Scooby-Doo, where they're like, aha, uh -huh, well, it's actually him or her, or, or you know, Cluedo or whatever it is. Um, how do you want the reader... This is probably a better question. How do you want the readers to feel at the end of your of your books. I mean, I don't know if there's cliffhangers. I don't know if there's any allude, alluding to um, a murderer that may be free to murder another day in another volume. But um, how do you want your readers to feel at the end? Do you want them to feel like, oh, we're all safe. It's, it's all, you know, justice has been served. Or do you still want to leave a slight feeling of sort of like unsettled and paranoid? I'm not so paranoid, but the, there are some loose ends deliberately left right. where um, I mean, there's a character, Pete Doubleday, who crops up in, in several of the books um, and uh, he's somebody who, who's got away with it, at least for now, but you know, hopefully he'll get his comeuppance at some point in the series. I like I liked the, the core of the book to be resolved, so the right. core crimes are resolved so the reader is satisfied with that, but there's always that little chink left to pick up something which wasn't quite resolved in a later book. Okay. Do you ever feel obligations to a reader to wrap things up? Do you ever feel like, oh, well, they've paid their money for this book, I better deliver this? Or do you think, no, you pay your money, you take your chances, or you pay your money in the faith that you're being taken on a ride by you and where, where, where you take that ride is up to you and 
you know, that's really what they're paying for is is the journey. Or do you feel like, you know, is, I guess what I'm saying, is there an obligation to wrap things up when you think, oh, really, I would like to keep that going for four books? Uh, I don't yeah, know I, if they I, have the patience. I think you, you, you don't want to disappoint the reader. And certainly the old trick of sort of somebody, somebody um, the culprit being somebody who you knew nothing about until, you know, the chapter before the last... Like that's cheating. So I always want to yeah. make sure the reader can think, oh, actually, now I think about it, of course, I'm, hmm. I always want the reader to be able to work back if they needed to. Um, but I want the reader to feel that everything is logical, that, that people's motivations, I mean, that's quite important to me, that you can understand why somebody did something. Um, it, I don't just suddenly say, well, he did such and such. Um, then why did he? Oh, I want the reader to sort of see how, how the characters have got to this point without suddenly saying, oh, you know, and he revealed, he wrote a letter and explained everything. Obviously, it's a bit of a cop-out when somebody sort of sends a letter after the fact to explain all the things that happened. Um, but I want the reader to kind of want to read on. So, in a sense, having a cliffhanger or having something left uncertain so the reader might think, oh, I wonder what happens in the next book. Um uh, that, that's quite. I think there is this kind of um, partnership, if you like, between the it sounds a bit corny, but between the reader and the writer that um, you're in this together. And, right. and certainly, if you're in it for you know, four books or whatever, um, hopefully a fifth book, um, that you, you're going to get some reward for for sticking with it. Right. So it's a trust thing at this point. I think yes, definitely. Because yes. book one is you, you know, you pay your money, you take a chance, don't mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, at this point, at least for you, I guess to many you were an unknown um, quantity, I guess, mm -hmm. or, or, or whatever. And so they 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 take a chance. And then by book three, it's more all right, Nikki. Where are we going with this one? <laughs> yes. Then, isn't it? Which is really lovely. Mm -hmm. It's really lovely. And of course, every reader. It's going to have a different relationship mm. to the characters in this in this book. You can't control. There's an element of that that you cannot control, mm. which I think mm. is really very interesting mm. because it can, it's like songs, isn't it? People yes. will interpret yes. yeah. whatever they like. That some people interpret some really wild things from songs. That yes, have. yes. Um, and so some people will be doing that with your characters as well. And I wonder if that that scope. That sort of ambiguity works in your favour, in in a way, because you can sort of, you know, you can be a bit free with where where you take these people and what you do to them, mm, mm. I guess, um, because you know that there's there's so many varying spectrums of how people mm, feel about mm, each mm. character. So it's sort of well, I mean, I think if I'd because from the beginning, because of this horrible story, this this uh, murder. I had to disguise it. I couldn't say it was set in Salisbury. I mm. had to disguise it. At one point, I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't had to do that. Um, but on the other hand, it's given me a lot of freedom so that um, I can play around with the topography, for instance. So places, for, for instance, in The Price of Silence, um, mm. at one point, the um, things happen at uh, Lookout Hill, well, if anybody knows Salisbury or the Southampton Road, there's a Pepperbox Hill, there's Folly on Pepperbox Hill, um, up the dual carriageway. Um, uh, well, I mean, I've made that much closer to, to Barbary than Pepperbox really is to Salisbury because of, you know, for the sake of the plot. 
Right. Um, but if anybody knows Salisbury, they can possibly think, well, I wonder if that's based on... Um, and they can kind of guess where I ha what I had in mind. Um, but I was saying something the other day, it, it's funny how you, you base things... Um, on your experience without even realising it. In the Price of Silence, after this murder at the public toilets, the team sets up um, a forward post um, in some mobile classrooms at the community college just across the dual carriageway. And uh, the, the idea being if any eyewitnesses want to come forward or they want to have teams based there close to the scene of the crime, they, they'll be there for a few days. And... I obviously wrote that probably about 1990 and didn't really think much of it. Then a few years ago, I suddenly thought, I know what was in my mind when I when I created that and had this forward post in a mobile classroom next to the college. When I was probably still at school, so we're talking like 1969, 1970, uh, my sister and I did a pedestrian census. Um, I think, we, I don't know how we got onto it, where we had to sit in this classroom by the Technical College in Salisbury to watch people using a footpath. Right. We sat there all day, and I think 17 people walked by. Right. But obviously that experience stuck in my mind somewhere. So, right. you know, when I came to, to write the novel, I straight away had this idea of, oh, well, there's a mobile classroom there that they can use, that they're going to set up in a mobile classroom. And where that memory had been lurking all that time, I don't know, but somehow it was there. Um, and I think if you're a writer, you have all these memories, these things you kind of build up as, as a little catalogue of things and then you perhaps turn back to them later. Um, and you think, did I invent that or was that real? And, and um, it's quite a strange experience, really. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Are you, you're not sick of your character yet? No, I mean, I think after I did got the fourth one published... When it was kind of on its way to to coming out, I thought, oh, I think I've had enough of this. It, it's just... Because, you know, I think if you're an independent author, you've got to work so hard at promotion. Right. And you see people on Twitter saying, I'm past 100,000 followers. Yeah. And, and um, you know, uh, and you think, oh, goodness sake. You know, like, <laughs> what's that, 73 or something? Um, <laughs> no, slightly more, but not that many. And... and um, Froome Writers Collective, we had as a guest recently, Kerry Wilkinson, who used to go to Froome College, he used to live in Froome. Right. And he's a phenomenally successful crime writer. Oh, is he? He lives in Canada now. Right. Um, but he, you know, he's just got uh, sold you know, thousands of copies of his books. And, you know, I haven't really sold that many. I thought, oh, perhaps I'll stop now. But then people said, began to say, well, when's the fifth one coming out? And I'm thinking, oh. And also thought, well, I, I don't really want to stop yet because I, I haven't, finished the story yet I right. haven't finished Lincoln's story and I just suddenly thought no I think I will carry on I'll just perhaps do you know book five and and so I, I've begun that now and um right interesting well you know it's you've yeah like you've five books in something's mm. working isn't it and if people are asking for a fifth book you're um you're connecting with someone somewhere mm, mm. and i i do know a few people that write on a sort of the independent level and it does seem to be a huge um a huge slog let's say it is it, it's because there's so there's so much out there yeah and and then you get readers on facebook or something saying um yeah you get this for free and you think oh for goodness do you not realize how what, you know what independent writers what it costs us in effect yeah you know you i mean I, I 
if I sell my books through a bookshop, I make a pound per copy. You know, that's the that's the profit I get. Really. Right. Um, so so it is you for know, the love. It, it, you do it for the, you and you end up doing it for love. There's no point. I had to, at one point I had to think to myself: Do I want to do it for the money? I should be so lucky, or do I want to do it because I love doing it and I love the fact that people say I really enjoyed your book, and and that is, is really what satisfies me more than you know the royalty statements. Royalty statements would be lovely as well. I've had you know some nice income, but <laughs> it's just so nice to have people say they've enjoyed the books, yeah, and to sort of say, oh, is that based on such and such? And uh, it's just so nice. It's just uh, you you do feel kind of part of a community it does sound corny doesn't it but um no not at all and it's nice that what i what i have found is a lot of older men seem to enjoy the books right or perhaps they just take the trouble to to sort of say they've enjoyed the books um, which i think is nice because a lot of a lot of older men or men generally don't read fiction and uh, they perhaps I read it when read they're young fiction, but really. yeah no, no. I tend to read non-fiction if I read at mm. all. Mm. I've got ADHD, so I do find it quite difficult mm. to... It's it's more... I don't find it difficult to sit and read. Once I do it, I can I can enjoy it. It's the idea of... It's the idea of being like, right, we're going to sit down and we're going to sit still and we're only going to have our eyes <laughs> um, stimulated right now. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So yes. It, it can be difficult, but I do love, I do love reading a, a good mm. book. When I have been wanting to to read some fiction mm. for a long time a friend of mine said uh, he said to me once when i was talking to him about my reading habits and how he likes to read fiction as well mm. he said well the good thing with fiction and i hadn't even thought about this is is that you really get to um you really get to figure out what's going on in the head of the author and i thought that is a fantastic perspective mm. that i hadn't even thought of because you know the You'd think when you're reading a book, it's the author being like, well, we're not talking about me, we're talking about this. But it's what, you know, it's all coming from your mind, isn't it? Mm, it's all coming mm. from... And so, you know, you look at someone like Stephen King and you think, oh, he's probably a messed up man, right? Yes. Because it's coming from <laughs> that mind. Yes. And as you said, you know, to write crime, you must be of a slightly nervous disposition or slightly disturbed um, and I do think that's interesting that you you know a lot of people can extrapolate things about you and and uh, your imagination and and who you are mm, from mm. how you compose this this whole thing this whole world orchestrate you know what's going on mm, in the book. Mm. Um, do you think there are any authors out there that that are particularly sort of revealing with their work about who they are as as people? that you like um, I don't know um, I think Stephen King has got some great advice for writers but I don't find his style he has some great ideas mm. for books but I don't like his writing style um, I'm not sure I mean I think I like Kate, Kate Atkinson I like her Jackson Brody series um, but she's quite elusive as a writer and, and I think she's not everybody's cup of tea and, and I, I also like Ian Rankin I love the Rebus books and John Harvey, who created Charlie Resnick. And they're set in Nottingham. Right. And you can tell he's a poet and you can tell he loves the blues because there's a rhythm to his language. Right. Uh, and the spontaneity to his language that is just just shines through. I love he's that. He's a great writer. I love that. Um, we're going to wrap this up in a moment, but I wanted to ask you, when you were talking about the slog of being an independent writer... <laughs> When books like Fifty Shades of Grey 
and Twilight become huge international hits, almost culture-defining, yet people who really know books say they're written like trash. Does that anger you? Does it annoy you? Or are you just pleased that it's engaging more people with writing? I'm, I'm pleased it engages people and gives people hope that you know if you write independently, you can you can get somewhere. Um, it's frustrating because you think, oh, those people could have spent money on on better books. But then you you can't say to somebody, you've got to like it, you've got to like this, you've got to love this book. Yeah. Um, you know, all you can do is is make them aware of it and and hope they discover the book. Um, and I think that's the you know getting back to Freemasons Collective and Silver Crow books. I'm so grateful for for both of them, um, Silver Crow, you know, because it helps promote the books that we've we've all written. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, as an independent writer, to push yourself forward. Because I think most writers, by nature, are shy. We're we're spectators. We we aren't out there, you know, um, being. Um, extrovert we, we tend to be introvert so it's difficult to say i'm a brilliant writer you'll really love this right. you know yeah it um, top a... this yeah um and and so it, it's good that you kind of got that excuse to say um you know push other people's books as well yeah i hope they'll do the same for you um but just simply to put across that if you're an independent writer there are ways of 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 getting published of getting publicized of getting support to for instance if you've just written something um, you've just got something published and you think, well, how on earth do I go into a bookshop and do a talk? I don't know, how, I don't know what to do. <laughs> but if you've got somebody else with you who sort of knows the ropes a bit and can kind of push you forward, and uh, it, it's, it's a hand-holding exercise, really, that you're not on your own. Because I think that's the thing about writing independently. You feel very much on your own. Everybody knows far more about the technology of of creating books doing stuff on Amazon, um, you know, the, the you know, Kindle books and so on, all the technical stuff, but also uh, the whole thing about pricing and who does what and who takes what cut and all the legal stuff. And there's just so much out there. If you aren't with a traditional publisher, uh, you've got to handle all that stuff yourself. And it really is a 24-7 task, mm. or you can let it be a 24-7 task. Um, but to know that you've got somebody who you can turn to and say, look, I've had this problem with the printer. Um, can you just sort of say to him, what, what do I say to him? Um, because he's, he's telling me this, is this right? Right. Um, just to turn to somebody else who will give you friendly support and, and um, a bit of advice. Uh, and that's just so enriching, mm. the whole experience of, of writing and publishing independently to have that little bit of a fallback for somebody to, to be there in the background to kind of pick up the pieces um, and, to, and to put you straight. That's, that's really good. And I think it's the essence of Froome, isn't it, really? is, is the, the Froome Writers Collective is just that. It's just so supportive. And I think there is... Um, we won't get political, but I think there is this element of, of cooperation and, and helpfulness and, and kind of doing things together yeah. and, and, you know, to try and do things better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm. I can't remember what I said at the beginning of that writers' collective meeting. Something about Froome yeah, being like the yeah. centre of the universe, and, and that any creative endeavour here will and can be supported. Yes. Um, and uh, you don't have to throw a stone very far before you find someone with with the knowledge or the skills that you need. But talking of enriching, 
This has been a very enriching conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, you enjoyed it. <laughs> I have, um, yeah, since I, you know, when I saw you do the talk mm. at, the, at the collective, I, I wanted to have this conversation, so I'm really pleased. That oh, thank you. But, um, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice. Big thank you to Nikki Copleston for coming on to the Giant Pod this week. We will leave links to her books and the other things that we've talked about in the show notes description box. If you uh, have a friend who you think would enjoy this, please send it to them. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Please leave us a five-star rating on Spotify if you can. That would be great. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you can. It is at the Giant Pod. My Instagram is Andy underscore TGP. This podcast was produced by the inventor of the Dewey Decimal System, Harry Williams. We will see you next week on the Giant Pod. Thanks very much.